Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. We're very honored to have a dear friend of ours, of Jim and my friend, as well as uh, Wellversed uh, World Prayer Network family. Uh, Matt serves as founder, chairman, and senior pastor of Liberty uh, Council. He really doesn't need much of introduction for our family, Matt. Thank you so much. We've asked you to come on to discuss the misnomer legislation, uh, Respect of Marriage Act, which is more disrespect or destruction of marriage act that was passed just a couple of weeks ago. If you can just brief us on the ramifications of that act. Absolutely, Mario. Uh, Thank you uh, for inviting me and uh, Jim and Rosemary. uh, Happy anniversary. It doesn't seem like nine years. It's just amazing how time flies. So Uh, You look as good as ever, in fact, better than ever. So thank you for all you're doing. It's a pleasure to start off the year with you. Uh, Yes, last year, you know, we opposed and you all opposed, and I know you talked about this, this uh, Respect for Marriage Act, which frankly is more accurately described as the Disrespect for Marriage Act. This is a bill that was passed. Unfortunately, there were a number of Republicans uh, that came on the Senate side that allowed this to pass. It passed in the House. Some Republicans joined with the Democrats to pass it. Uh, Those individuals later regretted uh, their vote. Many of them did. Some of them actually changed their vote when they found out what this bill was really about, which is surprising. It was a three and a half page bill, pretty straightforward. All you have to do is read same-sex marriage, and that should be enough to uh, be a big red flag. But at any rate, it did pass in the Senate, and it was signed into law. Uh, what does this bill do? Well, it actually states that one state has to recognize another state's same-sex marriage. This bill was passed essentially in response to Justice Clarence Thomas's statement in the Dobbs decision, the abortion decision that overturned Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey on June 24, 2022. And in that decision, he said that the Supreme Court ought to look at other cases Uh, that also are unconstitutional, that have no legal foundation, just like Roe versus Wade, and that he listed some of those cases. And one of those was the Obergefell decision of 2015, the so-called same-sex marriage decision that was issued by a 5-4 ruling. Well, in response to that, that's where this particular legislation came. Uh, Fearing that Obergefell might be overturned, uh, this particular bill says that one state has to recognize another state's same-sex marriage. Uh, Let me come back to that in just a moment because there's other parts of this particular bill that were problematic. There were three areas. One, the same-sex marriage. Two, uh, the polygamy, because the way it was written, it opened the door for polygamy. Uh, The co-sponsors of the bill acknowledged that fact in order to get some final uh, votes from Republicans to overcome the 60-vote filibuster, They issued an amendment at the very last moment that actually says it will not apply to or open the door to polygamy. So that's a good thing. That door has been shut. But the other thing that it does is it essentially says that one state has to recognize another state's marriage. It's not just limited to same-sex marriage. So what does that mean? That would mean any marriage. Right now, does every state have to recognize another state's marriage? Well, not until this law was passed. So for example, California has no age limit on the age of children being married. 
And there's a couple of other states that have no age limit. Most states do. Florida at one time had no age limit on how young you could be to get married. What happened in Florida is what happened in some other states is what we call child bride marriages. Those child bride marriages, they're not an 18-year-old marrying a 17-year-old, although you may have that. They're a 50-year-old marrying a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, uh, a 13-year-old child. Most of those have come from two different scenarios. One, they've been sexually abused, raped, and impregnated, and they've been pressured to get married. And then they continually get sexually abused until the age of majority. If they run away, they're a minor. They can't sign a contract for a house, a car, a loan. Uh, if they run away, they are a minor and they're returned back to their guardian. In this case, it would be their spouse. There's a couple of hundred of these so-called child bride marriages around the country. And they come from those two sources. One, rape, and then being pressured to get married. And number two, different kinds of cults. And those would be religious cults. Some of those would be break off from the Mormon cults or Mormon cults that uh, engage in polygamy. Uh, these are not part of the, the, the general Mormon church, but spinoffs from the Mormon church. And then there's others as well that are engaging in polygamy. And these young girls are being forced into these marriages. So that happened in Florida. And one of those child bride marriages, um, the individual reached the age of majority and was eventually able to flee, lobbied the Florida legislature with the stories. And they said, no, we can't have this. They put an age limit like most states have. California doesn't have it. Now with this particular law, uh, these child bride marriages will be expanded because one state now will have to recognize the same sex marriage as well as any other marriage of another state. The main issue, however, though, is let's go back to the name of this particular bill, this or the reason for this bill, and that's to make one state recognize another state's same-sex marriage. On the one hand, it's a problem because any time that you create a federal law uh, that recognizes, in this case, same-sex marriage, you create a federal policy. That federal policy has implications, even though it doesn't have a specific uh, statement to prohibit or to allow something, it creates a baseline policy on which other things occur. Let me give you an example. Bob Jones University had a policy against interracial dating. There was no law that banned Bob Jones from having that policy. Now, they have since changed their view, and they do not ban interracial dating. But at the time, they did, and they based it on their biblical beliefs. That's what they said. This was their religious beliefs. The IRS came to them and said, you need to change the policy. Bob Jones at the time said no, and the IRS revoked their tax-exempt status. Now, Bob Jones challenged that because there's no law. They were violating no express state or federal law. But the IRS said, but there's the IRS law regarding tax exemption, and the law generally has this policy of non-discrimination, and this is non this is a discriminatory practice. There was literally no law they violated, but they said, you're violating a policy. And they revoked the exemption. They took this case to the US Supreme Court and Bob Jones lost. They lost over not a specific law. Uh, they didn't violate any particular 
express law except this generalized policy in the IRS code of non-discrimination. So once you create a policy, in this case, recognizing same-sex marriage, what that does in this case is say, in a gender-based obvious relationship of man and woman, marriage between husband and wife, gender no longer matters because one state has to recognize another state's same-sex marriage. That sets a policy that essentially begins to unravel the importance of gender. You extrapolate that out and that can go into tax exempt status challenges as a general public policy into accreditation of schools for non-discrimination or discrimination bases. It can also extend into uh, sports with boys and men entering into girls and women's sports. And so the policy it sets can be very damaging and dangerous. We're gonna to have to be very cautious, or I should say, we'll have to be a very uh, consistent to oppose any kind of uh, expansion of this to our religious freedom and perhaps bring challenges based on religious freedom if this gets enforced in that way. So that's a problem. Here's on the other hand, the good news, if you will. I have uh, since 2015, I wanted to get a case back to the United States Supreme Court to overturn the Obergefell decision. Obergefell is on just the same weak ground that Roe versus Wade was on, and that's what Justice Thomas was talking about in his opinion. That case ought to be re-examined. Uh, our client, Kim Davis, was the first person to be arrested following the Obergefell decision when she, as a clerk in Kentucky, refused to recognize a same-sex marriage. She refused to put her name, her title, and authority on a marriage that God does not sanction or approve of. And she was put in jail for six days. Uh, we're still in litigation over that case with the ACLU in that matter. Uh, but this particular case came as a result of a Burgerfell overruling the laws of Kentucky and other states in this five to four ruling. I believe a Burgerfell is easy to challenge and easy to overrule. It's not a problem with regards to challenging it based upon the constitution. It has no basis at all. Three of the five justices in the 5-4 decision are no longer there. And we have three new justices, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Barrett. So it's on very weak ground. Chief Justice John Roberts issued a very strong dissent to a Burgerfell. The problem with overruling a Burgerfell until now is the policy decision, not the legal decision. On the law, it's easy. On the policy, it was more difficult. And the policy I mean by this, you ask the Supreme Court justices to overturn a Burgerfeld, the same-sex marriage opinion, and I think you win on the argument that it has no constitutional basis. But then the question comes up is, what happens if we do that? Look at all the people that relied upon a Burgerfeld and they went out and got licenses. Now they have joint tax returns and joint property and custody and distribution of this or that because of the marriage license that they obtained, that they achieved or obtained. Uh, what's going to happen? We're going to cause chaos. Yes, it was wrong, but we'll create a, a great chaos by overruling it. This particular law takes away that argument. So the very fact that they wanted to push same-sex marriage, I believe, will be the undoing at the Supreme Court of same-sex marriage. Because what this particular law says is one state has to recognize another state's same-sex marriage. So a Burgerfell, if it's overruled today, all of those licenses that are currently in existence will be, so to speak, grandfathered in. They're not going to be affected. 
what would then happen? The states, and that is the vast majority of states, would go back to their pre-2015 laws. And we had 30-some states that had constitutional amendments. We had all the states that had marriage as the union of a man and a woman, except for Massachusetts because of its state Supreme Court. So what we will have is essentially a, a duplication of what we're seeing with regards to abortion. Supreme Court overturns the abortion decision, and now the battle goes back to the states. Supreme Court overturns Obergefell, and now marriage, where it's been before, goes back to the states. And now the justices no longer will have to wrestle with what happens when they make a decision based on the law. There's no policy ramification that they need to be concerned about. And that argument is now gone. So what they intended to do to advance same-sex marriage, I believe, uh, can be used and will be used without question to overturn this terrible Obergefell decision at the U.S. Supreme Court. So that's the good and the bad part of what happened with this particular passage of the bill. Mario, you're muted. You need to unmute. Thank you, Matt. A couple questions. Um, how soon do you think uh, you may have the case before the Supreme Court? Well, the Kim Davis case already went to the Supreme Court uh, with a petition for review about two years ago. It was not on the fundamental issue of overturning a Burgerfeld. It was on some other uh, tangential legal issue. It wasn't ready for full review at the Supreme Court. Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, however, said uh, that the Obergefell decision does need to be reconsidered uh, and that this case would be perhaps one of those that would be a catalyst for it clearly. So this case is now working its way back up to the US Supreme Court. We're back now at the appeal level and we're raising not only the religious free exercise argument, but we're also going to be raising, especially now, uh, the unconstitutionality of Obergefell and asking Obergefell to be overturned. I believe it could be within the next two years. What about uh, bringing up uh, uh, constitutional uh, problems with the uh, Disrespect for Marriage Act? I think there will be some constitutional issues that will come up. I, I think that certain uh, states uh, will possibly uh, bring lawsuits uh, on behalf of the states, especially uh, the breadth of this particular law goes beyond, as I mentioned, just same-sex marriage. It also covers any other marriage. So you lose state sovereignty over this, and states can't have their own marriage laws. The worst marriage laws in the country can now be exported from one state to another under this particular law. That's a terrible consequence of it. But if this particular law gets uh, uh, now applied to someone like a Kim Davis, some other clerk or some other individual or somebody in the private sector, uh, we'll have to raise the religious free exercise as a defense. I think we can ultimately win that uh, but the fact is, there's going to be some people that will be intimidated by it. I think as pastors and churches and believers, uh, we just need to continue to do what we always do and never be intimidated and never change course. Just be prepared for additional battles ahead. And when they come, we will take them on. Um, what can uh, the pastors uh, do, uh, expect from this uh, uh, new legislation, um, whether... Uh, charges brought against them or private lawsuits 
what what kind of effect would it have on 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 uh, the the baker or the photographer that does not want to perform gay marriages, etc. And um, not not for profit uh, that uh, not a church but a C three that's a Christian organization. Uh, what kind of ramifications do they have, and what can they do to protect themselves? Well, good, uh, good question, Mario. You know, we were pushing uh, once this law looked like it was going to be uh, passed, or this bill looked like it was going to be passed. We were pushing for a broader religious freedom exemption, and uh, um, there were three of those that were being pushed. All three of those got rejected. Uh, the only one that got passed was a very, very narrow one by Tammy Baldwin, who is a, a lesbian legislator in Wisconsin, and then Susan Collins from Maine, Republican, and then Baldwin, a Democrat. So they came together, had a very narrow religious freedom uh, exception. Even uh, the human rights campaign, uh, they took a neutral position on, it, and they're always opposed, always opposed to religious exemptions in these LGBTQ laws. So you really understand that this is nothing of any protection. The only entity that would be protected under this very narrow view is an entity that is a nonprofit whose primary role is the teaching of the Bible. So right now, that would include a church, but it's not going to include most nonprofits. Uh, and that would extend to protecting those entities with regards to tax exemption, but not everything else. So churches or an entity that's primarily teaching the Bible has this very narrow exemption. Most nonprofits, even religious nonprofits, uh, would not be under this religious exemption. No for-profit company would be under this, even though it's Christian. So a Chick-fil-A or a Hobby Lobby they're automatically excluded. Nonprofits that are not primarily teaching the Bible, no matter how uh, religious uh, their mission might be, uh, if they're not primarily teaching the Bible or religious doctrine, uh, they are not included as well. Uh, so it's really of no benefit whatsoever. I think, however, churches and nonprofits, um, particularly religious nonprofits, as well as uh, Christian operated and owned businesses like Chick-fil-A, Hobby Lobby, those kinds of businesses ought to make sure in their policies that they have a doctrinal belief. And that doctrinal belief needs to spell out marriage as the union of a man and a woman grounded in scripture. I believe you should also do that with the sanctity of human life as well, so that it is very clear the doctrinal basis and the beliefs of, of that ministry of that organization. That will provide the best uh, attack or best defense if you're ultimately targeted uh, as a result of this law or something similar. Great. Thank you so much, Matt. Back to you, Jim. On the amendments, I believe Mike Lee had an amendment and James yes. Langford had an amendment, I think, and neither one of them passed in the Senate. Uh, I, I find that odd that they couldn't even get, based on the First Amendment, a, a, a religious protection amendments to, to, to go through with this. Uh, why was that, do you think? Yes, uh, they both had amendments, and I believe there was a third amendment by Cruz. They were all strong amendments, and they would have given the broad religious protection that we need. Um, but uh, they, you know, and unfortunately, you had what, 12 Republicans, they needed uh, 
They needed 10 Republicans to get to that 60 vote threshold and they got 12 Republicans. And, and Jim, here's something that's really interesting. Uh, and it really made me realize that there are people that are Christians and they can speak the language we do. In fact, one of those senators uh, who voted in favor of this bill, if you and I talked to her, well, if we got her on here right now and we asked her, do you believe marriage is the union of a man and woman? Yes, the Bible says marriage is the union of a man and woman. Your church believes that, yes. She actually said that the LGBTQ agenda, those people pushing it, they're very mean and she's been the target of all kinds of hate and so forth. And you listen to what she says and she articulates all the right things. So if she's running for office, you would think that she's one of us, if you will. But then what she said is essentially she lost courage. She thought, well, this would be the only way to bring a resolution of the vitriol that comes against her and other people that believe in marriage as the union of a man and woman. She lacked courage. So we need to not only help people understand Christian worldview, but we need to raise people who are courageous as well. And she misunderstood the fact that if she voted for this, all things are going to be like getting around the campfire and singing Kumbaya with people who support same-sex marriage. And she's completely wrong. There were others, however, that were not in that particular mode, but unfortunately there were enough Republicans that voted with uh, her and they voted against, they voted against these religious liberty amendments, which is really shocking. It's one mm -hmm. thing to vote for this bill. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to vote for these religious liberty amendments. And here's why I think they voted for against the religious liberty amendments. Because if those amendments that you mentioned, uh, there were three of those amendments and they were strong. If they had been added, uh, human rights campaign would have opposed it. And some of the Democrats would have bolted and they would not have been able to get their 60 votes. So some of those individuals were so much in favor of same-sex marriage, that they were willing to put religious freedom and sacrifice it on the altar. That's a sad commentary. And that applies to the Democrats across the board and that uh, small group of Republicans, the 12 uh, people that voted on the Senate side as well. I have a question that you may not know the answer to because neither you or I are, are, are Mormons. When the Mormons stood with us on Proposition 8 in California, when the heat was on, evangelical pastors and, and the Catholic Church came together, traditional Catholics, and worked together very well. Later, the Mormons came alongside to defend marriage. We don't share with them theologically the same, but we, we, we said we're, we're friends and neighbors, and based upon that, we're going to work together to save marriage. And they worked wonderful hand-in-glove with us. Uh, we ran to raise $42 million, and there's only 3% of our population that's Mormon, but they raised 40% 40, 40 of the $42 million. So they really came through. But then the Salt, Lake, the Salt Lake Compromise came into existence a few years ago, and then the Mormon Church came out officially in favor of the uh, what we call the Disrespect for Marriage Act. Yeah. Do you have any inside knowledge as to why that happened, that capitulation? Yeah, I do. Uh, and it's called the Utah Compromise, as you mentioned. And it's this mistaken idea that just allow us to have religious freedom and we'll give you everything that you want. 
and we'll all live happily ever after. And so let's compromise on this. Uh, just give us religious freedom and then you can have same-sex marriage and we'll all live happy. That's the, that's the idea that if they give them what they want, then, then they'll be left alone. And that's flawed from so many different angles. Number one, that creates a religious ghetto. Okay, so what happens if the church is uh, exempted? What about your, your congregation? They go to work, they go to these different places, they go to, some of those are Christian business owners and operators. They're, uh, you know, they're living in uh, this situation. You're okay, you're living above it. That's like saying, well, you know, I'm not a Jew, so I'm not gonna stand up for the Jews. Uh, but then all of a sudden, you know, they come for you because no one is left to stand up for you. Uh, as you, you, we remember that famous quote. Um, so you, you have that kind of mentality. And so it's the Mormons that have changed on this issue since Proposition 8 and since what you were talking about. They came up with this Utah Compromise. So it's now the Mormon church that will be willing to give virtually anything to the LGBTQ agenda, as long as you get a few religious freedom crumbs just for them or from a small group of people um, or small group of organizations or churches. It's the Seventh-day Adventists, believe it or not. They also were part of this as well. And they're in conjunction with the uh, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists. And it's also the uh, Christian colleges and universities organization and they started going off that same track. And then there's also uh, a, uh, there's a, um, a Jewish organization as well uh, that has come together. And they came together, and they're the ones that helped convince Senator Susan Collins, well, these religious uh, folks, uh, they're supporting this. So let's, she used that as justification to push this bill. This bill. So you, you have some, and so it's not just over with this bill, that group of organizations, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, um, the Christian Colleges and Universities Organization, which has a lot of Christian colleges and universities, some of those have withdrawn because they're going down this woke LGBTQ agenda. And that's been happening over the last several years. And uh, there's others that are being brought into that coalition. They've been very unsuccessful in getting consensus until this most recent bill. And just a, a quick story, Matt, but for those who might think, well, we're kind of belligerent and we're, we're, we're abrasive to the homosexuals. Uh, you mentioned the uh, uh, human rights campaign. I was on Dr. Phil's show twice. Uh, I was with, with, with Gavin Newsom, by the way, at that time, <laughs> back in the day. And, uh, and Joe Salmonis at that time was the head of the human rights campaign. And uh, I, I gave a, a, a legal argument. I said, our attorneys looked at this. And here's this case. It was out of, out of Michigan, as I recall. And on Dr. Phil's show, he says, see, there they go again. He said, that lie. They just lie. See how they just lie about it. And so camera and lights were on. Of course, millions were watching. So when the camera and lights were off, I went to Joe. I said, Joe, what did I say that was wrong? He said, I lied about that case. What was off about that? He said, I don't know anything about the case. Mm. I said, my goodness. Now, I had a choice then to confront him over what he'd done or try to reach out. And so I said, Joe, if it wasn't for this issue, I bet we could probably be friends. Uh, next time I come to Washington, D.C., I'm gonna come to your office and visit with you. So I did, a few months later. I still remember the look of that building uh, very well. Went to the top floor, met in his office. And I said, tell me your story. I've got 90 minutes, just tell me your story, who you are. 
So he did. At the end of that, I didn't, I didn't talk about mine. I just, I'll just him. I says, let me ask you a question, Joe. Do you think I'm a, a liar? Do you think I'm a, I'm a bigot? He looked at me in shock and said, no, not at all. I didn't go back and say, well, that's what you called me in front of millions of people when the camera was on and the lights were on. Mm, I was attempting yeah. to reach out, and I did this multiple times, even inviting the poster child of same-sex marriage to Skyline for a seminar in which we say, you make your case, we're going to make ours biblically, and let's see where the truth lies on this. Let's see if we can have a conversation, but go to the scriptures. What does the Bible say? He openly admitted this bishop of the Episcopalian Church, Gene Robinson, openly admitted the Bible doesn't support what I'm doing. He openly admitted the Bible didn't speak to that. So we have ways of reaching out. We attempt to, to reach out. I'd like to go back to the question, uh, Matt, on the issue of public accommodation or public use of a building. Does this new law make it more difficult? A church says, okay, you can rent our church for weddings or festivities, various activities, receptions, et cetera. Does it make it more difficult for a church to say, no, we will not allow uh, so-called same-sex, so-called wedding to take place here uh, in our facilities or that kind of event? Or yeah. is, is you know, Jim, I've had similar situations and, and encounters just exactly like what you're saying. And but uh, I think it does make it more difficult uh, because it doesn't have uh, uh, the exemption is for tax exemption and it doesn't go into the explanation or the breadth of public accommodation. So I think there can be some challenges even with regards to churches in this area using their facilities for same sex uh, weddings. I think, however, at the end of the day, we win on those. However, how many uh, churches will be intimidated and pastors intimidated uh, over this issue and litigation that has to happen as a result of it? It should never have been uh, passed in the first place. But I think at the end of the day, if we take a case like this with the current constitution of the Supreme Court, the, the, the current um, justices on the Supreme Court, I think we ultimately uh, win on a religious free exercise claim in this area. So continue to do what you always do. Um, don't stop weddings because of fear for this. Just continue to follow God's call in your mission. The, um, going back to the vote in the Senate and the House, the vote in July in the House on this issue, 47 Republicans yeah. capitulated and voted for that for which God destroyed Sodom. I, I, I Actually, I probably misstated that because Sodom didn't even affirm so-called same-sex marriage. They didn't yeah. go that far, uh, but they, they affirmed so-called same-sex marriage. Now, uh, then when the vote was taken, and 12 senators, as you indicated, one of those was Senator Robert Portman. He yeah. changed his position simply because his, his son announced that he was homosexual. That's called policy by child. In other words, if your child says this, then I'm going to change my policy. Some, some Christian pastors even, theology by child. If a kid comes out and says, hey, I'm homosexual, then, then, then dad changes his whole understanding of the Bible seen this way too many times. I had I confronted Portman to his face on this on one occasion, which I believe all of us should do in, in, a, in a proper way, but we ought to confront people who make these kinds of changes. And in the case of the vote in July, 47 members of the House of Representatives, when they voted in December, it dropped to 39. Bad news, there were still 39 uh, GOP who violated their own party platform, which is crystal clear on this. Yeah. And there would have been enormous numbers of the party base that would have voted to him because of the difference between Democrat and Republican platform. I said at the outset, we're not partisan. The issue for us is right versus wrong. What the scripture says, we're fiercely committed 
Matt, you said a moment ago, to teaching the Bible, specifically what the scripture has to say about it. So that's the bad news. I want to bring you a little bit of good news. And you alluded to it, Matt, you may want to say more, that some of these really repented of this. Yeah, yeah. And they and they felt badly. My own congressman was not one. He stayed with a bad vote a second time, tragically, there Elisa. But the good news is some repented. One one this is open right now, what I'm going to say, because it was it was on the on Tony Perkins radio show. So we can talk about this openly. But Congressman Scott Perry, who's been in the news a lot this last week, he voted the wrong. He called his pastor. His pastor said, vote for it. He followed his pastor's advice. That was a pathetic pastoral advice. He needs to get a new pastor right away. But then he, he realized what he had done. He went on that live radio show nationally and repented mm. of what he had done. Now, that's what a real person does. I want to bring you that encouraging uh, report. He's in the news a lot because his cell phone was taken by the FBI. When you take your cell phone, you take your office. Uh, your office has been raided effectively. And, of course, he's in the news as part of the 20 this last week, which we celebrate the good things they did. So I want you to be aware of some members of Congress, maybe just by the squeeze and the heat that came on them, but some by a genuine, genuine remorse of their heart. They were convicted and they repented of, of sin and went from 47 down to, to 39. So eight of them saw the light and truth. Matt, any more stories of that nature you want? No, to I know that you're, you got great stories and you're right on. Uh, we were part of seeing that happen and meeting with these individuals. One of the things that we also uh, discovered is we, we have a lot of work with um, people on the Hill, people that are staffers. And as we were coming up to that vote again, the second vote in the House, and we were able to see that some of these were going to change and we didn't know the others as to where they would go. We were hearing reports from some of the staffers and uh, sometimes they share things with you. Uh, and what they shared was something of a concern that we see within some of Christendom. And that is some of these people that would have voted completely different a few years ago, they were still going to vote the same way. So those 39 were still going to vote the same way. Why? Because they had friends or family members that were gay or lesbian and that they would get uh, heat from those individual relationships of individuals. And so what that is, is goes back to that first uh, illustration of the one senator. Uh, that senator could mouth the same kind of language that, uh, that you and I uh, speak about with regards to marriage but personal experiences ultimately override their biblical worldview. So their worldview, whether it's biblical or not, uh, their worldview that they base uh, their thinking on is not grounded. It's like a house that's not built on the rock. And so what happens is instead of your worldview being the ultimate determiner of what's right and wrong, good and evil, how you should vote on this particular bill, it's personal experiences that do that. And Rob Portman, as you mentioned, is a clear example. It's that personal experience. In that case, it's his son. Uh, in other cases, it's somebody who's a friend. Well, you know, I know that they're in a same-sex uh, relationship. They've got a same-sex marriage. They're nice people. Um, they're not harming anyone. That's the kind of uh, feedback that you get from some of these people. And so I can't vote against that without 
really making their vote in the grounded biblical worldview, that rock instead of the constantly shifting sand. So what for all of us that, that are here, uh, the lessons that I think that we can take from this is not only to teach a biblical worldview, but to make sure people are grounded in that biblical world. We not only have to think right, but we have to be grounded in it. So it's not uh, every wind of doctrine. One, one year we're thinking this way and an, another year we're thinking a different way. You know, I, I think the same way now that I, that I thought decades ago. And I, by God's grace, I'll be doing the same thing because it's grounded on internal uh, immovable principles in the in the scriptures. And, and then also, let's uh, just talk to the audience just for a moment here on the issue of if you hear a member of Congress, for example, you're talking about abortion and they say, well, I, I'm personally pro-life, but stop them right there and say, I don't care about your personal view right now. I care what you're legislatively visceral about, because if you're personally pro-life and you're not legislatively visceral about that, then the baby's still going to be killed. So we don't care about your personal view as it relates to this moment. Oh, we, what are you going to fight for legislatively? Are you going to try to save the life of the baby in the legal and in and, and, and the political and governmental realm? So don't let people all say, well, I personally believe that marriage is this. But in the public arena, don't, don't let them off the hook on that and make that false dichotomy should be a separate. separate. The other thing is, as you think about praying in the spirit of repentance for our nation, vicarious repentance, I believe Mario used the word vicarious repentance or Rosemary, maybe one of you did earlier on. Mario, I think it was you. Uh, on this, uh, to my knowledge, Matt, you can correct me if I'm wrong. To my knowledge, there's never been a time where all three branches of government agreed at the same time with the killing of babies. I may be wrong on that one, but I don't think so. The for court forced it on back at Roe v. Wade, and that was one branch. But uh, 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 but when we came to December the 13th, I remember right where I was. I was just so jolted when Biden signed that, that legislation in the White House and he had the steps, the stairs, the winding staircases loaded with people involved in, in, in wrongs for sexual relationships. Mm. That for which God destroyed Sodom and then had the drag queens, drag queens celebrating yeah. the drag queens with their story hours for children. That group was in the White House. He signed the document. As he signed it for the first time in the history of America, all three branches of government came against that for which God established so sacred in Genesis 1 and 2 and what Jesus even quoted in Matthew chapter 19 as well. And saying in effect, what God has established, let no Supreme Court or legislative body redefine right. marriage. That's a loose paraphrase of it. And so that's why we move into an act of, of, of contrition and repentance mm -hmm. on behalf of our nation. Repentance and forgiveness are frankly the only keys right at this moment uh, we, we, we have left. And that's why I would call us to that day of repentance, that times of repentance, February the 1st. Matt, let me go back to you for anything we should have asked you that we failed to ask you. And Mario, for any question you may have thought of in the last few moments that you want to ask Matt. I think I'm good, but I think uh, I think you're right, uh, Jim. Uh, when that happened and evil that is against God's creation of man and woman in his image, husband and wife, and celebrating that at the highest level of our government invited that darkness into the highest levels of government and thus into America. And we need to come and pray against that. And I believe that what uh, Mario, what you said, Jim, 
uh, about vicarious repentance is something that we as a body of believers need to do. Mario, question? Yeah, Matt, I just have a quick question on another topic and would like to ask you to please lead in that prayer of repentance for our nation, for our legislators and so forth. Um, you, you were fighting uh, very strongly to protect our military uh, when they were being discharged for the lack of the uh, COVID vaccine. The Pentagon just lifted that vaccine requirement for the military. What happens to all of those that were wrongly discharged before? Yeah, those that are wrongly discharged uh, are not uh, protected by that reversal yesterday. Of course, that reversal was uh, required by the signing of the National Defense Authorization Act. It was something that was not voluntary. Biden didn't want it. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin didn't want it. They wanted to keep it. But it's gone as of yesterday. But it only applies to active duty service members and also the National Guard and Ready Reserves. But no one who's already been uh, discharged uh, is being protected by that reversal. They have a statement that they released yesterday that those individuals uh, who were discharged, they could apply to have uh, their record reconsidered, but that's an individual basis. And that goes right back to the military tribunals. And we know how they have been on this issue. Um, and so I don't think there's a lot of hope for them in that realm. I, I think it's gonna have to be in a different uh, court uh, that uh, these individuals get justice. As it relates to the others that are active duty, uh, they will not face the mandate going forward. Uh, according to the directive yesterday, any negative discipline solely as a result of not taking this COVID-19 shot will be removed. And I emphasize the word solely because what they now have essentially said in the past and in our litigation is that, for example, if a commander who should be setting the example refuses the COVID shot, even for religious reasons, uh, that that is undermining good order and discipline. So even though they're going to remove that from your personnel file, uh, the fact remains is that still will be uh, hanging over that person's head. So I think uh, we're going to have to really be watching this. We go to trial in February. Uh, we'll see what happens if we continue to go to trial now that this happened. Uh, but I think it's, it's, it's unknown uh, whether the retaliation will stop against those who are still there. What's known is that they won't get the shot. What is known also, they'll still be pressured, although they won't be forced. And what's unknown is how much more retaliation will they face and what's going to happen to their careers. We don't know that yet. Okay. Thank you so much. If you can please lead us in prayer for our nation. Thank you. Lord Jesus, we come to you as we begin uh, this new year. We ask the Lord for your guidance and your direction, your blessing. We thank you uh, for just even uh, today, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act was passed in the U.S. House. We thank you, Lord, uh, for that uh, decision, for that bill, for those who voted in favor of it. We pray, Lord, that there will be uh, votes in the Senate that ultimately passes this as well. Uh, that we can protect innocent children who are born alive, but they're intentionally killed at the bare hands of an abortionist or that they're 
abandoned and left alone to die without any medical help or intervention. Lord, we come against uh, that evil and the wicked shedding of innocent blood. We pray for forgiveness. We also ask, Lord, that you will um, forgive our sins for our nation. Yes. For this evil of same-sex marriage that was sub celebrated in the highest levels of our country in the White House. Lord, we know that you created us in your image. <clears throat> we know uh, that you uh, created male and female husbands and wives, moms and dads, and that is the central building block of the family, Lord. And we apologize for our country, for our collective community, shaking uh, the fist at you and trying to reinvent your creation, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you will uh, bring repentance to our land, to our churches, and to this country. We pray that you will preserve it and protect it, but we pray for forgiveness, for the shedding of innocent blood, for the deconstructing of your holy design for sacred marriage. And Lord, we just pray, pray that your people, your pastors, your churches will rise up and that this year will be a year of rising up, Lord, of boldness, of speaking truth uh, to power, of speaking truth in love, Lord, of never giving up, of never, never thinking that uh, things are impossible, but to have the understanding that with you, all things are possible, that you are the creator of all, you are the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end, that at your feet every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Lord. We pray for revival this year. We pray for revival to begin with us and for our communities, our churches, Lord, and we pray that it spreads throughout this country and from this country across our borders. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Canada and uh, other borders that are trying to come in uh, legally, like uh, Herbert. Uh, we pray for his family and his his father and four other pastors that face fines like that as well in, in Canada. Lord, we just give you thanks as we begin this year. We thank you for some incredible things that happened in 2022 with religious freedom and life and family. And we just pray, Lord, that you will just give incredible blessings and protection to us and to your body of believers this year. And may your spirit reign upon us, Lord. May it reign this year in holiness and righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the Well-Versed Podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.